Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by fountainheadme.com. If you sell products through your website or on Amazon, Fountainhead Me will help you sell more and increase margins through advertising and optimization. If your business sells 10000 or more a month total, go to fountainheadme.com Peter for a free analysis that shows you how to make more money selling products online. Yesterday morning, the Labor Department released the highly anticipated November non-farm payroll report, otherwise known as the jobs report. And I think a lot of investors were anticipating that we would finally get a miss in the number of jobs created. The consensus was for 200,000 jobs created in November. And I think a lot of people on the street were looking for a lower number. And for good reason. Lots of companies had been announcing layoffs, particularly technology companies, In fact, yesterday, the Challenger job cut report came out and it showed 76,835 job losses in November. That is a huge number. It's more than double the number of job cuts announced the prior month and more than five times as many job cuts as were announced in November of 2021. And if you had the continuing unemployment claims that were released on Thursday as well, they hit a new 10-month high. So I think there was a lot of reason that investors were looking for a weak number. In fact, I think that's part of the reason that we had the strength in the stock market earlier in the week and the weakness in the U.S. dollar and the continued strength in gold. It was partially on the anticipation of a weak jobs number which would have taken some of the pressure off the Fed to hike rates more or keep rates higher for longer because a lot of people incorrectly still believe that inflation is caused 
by too many people working and that if we only have more unemployment, we'll have less inflation. Now, that isn't true, but that's what investors believe. But contrary to those expectations, we actually got yet another stronger than expected non-farm payrolls report, at least the way investors were reacting to it. In fact, this is the seventh month in a row where the jobs numbers have come out stronger than expected. And as a matter of fact, this report even included an upward revision to the prior month, which was originally reported as plus 261,000, which was a beat. Well, now it's a bigger beat because that was revised to 284,000. But the November number came in at plus 263,000 jobs. But probably what the markets also reacted to, in addition to that bigger than expected number, was the larger than expected increase in average hourly earnings, which were expected to rise 0.3, which would have been a smaller rise than the 0.4, which was originally reported for the increase in the prior month. Well, that number was revised to up 0.5, and the November number came out at 0.6, double what had been estimated, and actually 50% above the upper end of the range of estimates, which rent from a low of 0.3 to a high of 0.4. And year over year, average hourly earnings, which were expected to rise by 4.6, and which would have been a slight reduction from the up 4.7, from the prior month. Instead, we revised the prior month to up 4.9, and November, instead of going down, it rose to up 5.1%. So a big increase in average hourly earnings, both on the month and year over year, and that sent the chill through the market that the Fed would now have to be tighter with its monetary policy because inflation was getting worse due to increased pressure from rising wages. Now, average hours worked actually declined a bit from 34.5 to 34.4, but still workers got paid more for every hour that they did work. And that, of course, adds to the upward pressure on costs that their employers are already having to deal with. But in reality, it's not rising wages that are going to cause higher inflation. It is higher inflation that is causing wages to rise. Wages are just a price, the price of labor, just like every other price. And prices are going up because of inflation. Rising prices don't cause inflation. They result from inflation. And what this jobs report indicates is higher inflation. Inflation is pushing up wages. Now, they're not going up as much as prices because prices are still up about 8% year over year, and that's the official increase. The actual increase is probably twice that amount. And so real earnings are collapsing. And that is the real story behind this payrolls number, because contrary to the way it's being described by the media, it is not a strong report. In fact, I read one news story that described the U.S. labor market as being hot because of this report We had a red-hot labor market, according to the media. Well, the labor market is not hot. It's actually cool. In fact, it's pretty much ice cold. And that's what 
the non-farm payroll report actually reveals if you're smart enough to look beneath the surface. And by the way, you don't have to look very deep. Just looking at the nature of the jobs that were created, they were almost all service sector jobs. Only 14,000 manufacturing jobs were added. That's well below the 20,000 that were expected and even more below the 36,000 that were added in the prior month. Remember, the problem with these service sector jobs, and a lot of them were in government, they were in healthcare, they were in leisure and hospitality, but these jobs don't produce goods. But the people who have these jobs buy goods. Well, if they're buying goods that they didn't help produce, where are these goods coming from? They're going to come from abroad. These jobs that are being added are simply going to add to the trade deficit as people who have non-productive service sector jobs take their paychecks and buy goods that they didn't help produce. And not only do these jobs put upward pressure on the trade deficit, they also put upward pressure on goods prices because you have more people with paychecks to buy goods, but you don't have more people working to produce those goods. So you don't get the increase in supply, but you do get the increase in demand. So not only did this jobs report indicate higher inflation, but it portends even higher inflation in the future. But getting back to the details of the report itself, the unemployment rate held steady at 3.7%, but the labor force participation rate fell. It went from 62.2 down to 62.1. It dropped a tenth. The expectation was for an increase of one tenth to 62.3. In fact, the consensus forecast went from 62.2 to 62.3. Nobody expected labor force participation to drop, but that's exactly what happened. And that is indicative of a weak labor market. But where you really see the fraud in this establishment survey is when you look at the household survey, which paints a completely different picture of the labor market. And in fact, the household survey has been diverging sharply from the establishment survey since March of this year, because there's about 2.7 million jobs that the government claims were created in the official establishment survey, but none of those jobs were actually created if you look at the household survey. In fact, in the month of November, according to the household survey, another 138,000 jobs were lost. There was no job gain. There was a job loss. And in fact, since March, according to the household survey, there has been a net loss of 398,000 full-time jobs. And in fact, if you just look since May, the loss of full-time jobs is 480,000. While the government has been claiming that hundreds of thousands of jobs have been added every month, the reality is hundreds of thousands of jobs have actually been lost. The only type of jobs that have been added have been part-time jobs. According to the household survey, we've added 190,000 new part-time workers since March. And 
291,000 workers now have multiple jobs who didn't have multiple jobs prior to March now have multiple jobs today. And in fact, I believe that net all of the 2.7 million jobs that have been added since March either don't exist at all, in which case they're just fantasy jobs, or to the extent that they do exist, and a lot of them likely do, they are part-time jobs and they went to people who already had jobs. So this is not new workers entering the labor force. In fact, again, the labor force continues to shrink. Another 186,000 people left the labor force in November. And in fact, the number of working age people who are no longer in the labor force rose by 359,000 in November and we're now back over 100 million Americans who could be working who aren't. So the bitter irony of the November jobs report is that we didn't create 260,000 jobs because the economy is strong. We created those jobs because the economy is weak. And these new jobs don't indicate a strong labor market. They indicate a weak labor market. Why were these jobs created? Because people who already had jobs couldn't afford to pay the bills with the jobs they had. Their wages were falling in real terms, and so they needed another job to make up the loss. And so they took a second job, or they took a third job. This is not unemployed people returning to work. This is people who are already working, being forced to work harder, being forced to take multiple jobs and spend more of their time working and have less time for leisure, less time with their families. This is not strength. This is weakness. In a strong labor market, you only need one job. In a weak labor market where wages are falling, that's when you need multiple jobs. And of course, if we really had a strong labor market, workers would be able to demand wage increases above the rate of inflation. In other words, workers could demand to get paid more money rather than being forced to keep working for less money. And instead of being able to negotiate a real pay raise from their employer, being forced to seek second and third employers because that's the only way they can make ends meet in a weak economy with a weak labor market. But this weak labor market is going to get much weaker in 2023 as the layoffs really begin to mount because they're only just getting started. And what's going to be particularly problematic about this recession as the unemployment rate really starts to spike is that the unemployed workers are going to be in extremely dire financial circumstances. In fact, if you look at the numbers that came out yesterday on personal income and spending, personal incomes rose by 0.7% and personal spending rose by 0.8%. But again, these are unadjusted relative to inflation. In real terms, personal income and spending are falling. But what's significant about the numbers is that once again, spending outpaced incomes and that caused the savings rate to fall to 2.3%. This is the lowest the savings rate has been since July of 2005. And of course, in July of 2005, the reason Americans weren't saving 
is because they were so flush with home equity. Everybody thought they were rich because that was the peak of the housing bubble. And so people weren't saving. They were splurging. They had no idea that a great recession and financial crisis was just a few years away. But fast forward to 2022, when we are just entering a recession where millions of Americans are about to lose their jobs, they have no savings to fall back on. And not only do they have no savings, but they already have record credit card debt. Credit card debt right now is at an all-time record high. So Americans are about to lose their jobs with no savings and maxed out on their credit cards. But making the situation even worse is that homeowners are about to lose their home equity because real estate prices are about to drop sharply given both the surge in mortgage interest rates and now the coming surge in unemployment and recession, very few people are going to be able to be in a position where they can afford to buy a house. And so the only way anybody who owns a house will be able to sell it is if they do it at a much lower price. But all of those transactions at lower prices wipe out everybody's home equity. So even if you don't sell your home, your home equity is gone because the people who do sell their home sell it at a much lower price. And so this is going to be very problematic because in prior recessions, people were able to rely on that home equity to get by. Maybe they could take out a loan or they could do a refinance. Nobody could do that. Nobody could refinance their mortgage now because the rates are so much higher than the existing rates. And of course, a lot of people, even if they could get a lower rate, they won't be able to because they won't have the home equity to qualify for a new loan. Plus, it's not just falling home prices that are going to diminish the wealth of the unemployed. But what about the stock market? Many of the stocks that most Americans own have crashed. Sure, the major averages are down, but the stocks that most Americans own are down even more because it's the tech stocks, the high-flying fang stocks, these money-losing companies that were all the rage that have crashed. And those are the stocks that a lot of unemployed workers happen to own because a lot of the people who are losing their jobs are tech workers, and those tech workers likely invested in technology stocks. In particular, this will be an even bigger problem in the crypto and blockchain space because Bitcoin prices and the price of altcoins have collapsed even more than most stocks. And a lot of the people who work for blockchain companies, when they find themselves unemployed, their nest eggs are going to be completely gone because they were rotten to begin with because their nest eggs were cryptocurrencies. Well, now that they realize they're sitting on a bunch of rotten eggs, what are they going to do while they're unemployed? Their rainy day fund was their stack of sats or other cryptocurrencies. But now that it's pouring, their rainy day fund is already dried up. So we are going into a recession with American households in the worst financial position they've ever been in and with the threat of even higher inflation looming on the horizon. So not all your people with no savings and maxed out debt going to lose their jobs and have no safety net to fall back on but the cost of living is going to be soaring as they've lost their paychecks and their unemployment benefits are not going to come close to making up for what they've lost from their paychecks. But what those unemployment benefits will do is fuel the fires of inflation. 
because where is the government going to get the money to pay all these unemployed workers benefits? Going to be printed. The Fed's going to create this money, which is why I am still convinced that by 2023, the Fed's helicopters are going to be back in full flight. Quantitative tightening is going to be a thing of the past, and a brand new QE program is going to be launched, but it's going to be launched with high inflation, not low inflation. The Fed's going to pivot, even though it's not even close to its 2% inflation objective. And why is the Fed going to pivot? Because the recession that we are already in is going to get much worse. In fact, it may even morph into a financial crisis and the Fed will be forced to abandon its inflation fight in order to fight what it believes to be an even larger threat in the economy. But the negative consequences of the higher inflation will play out later in time than would the consequences of continuing to fight inflation in the face of a massive recession. And we know from past experience that expedience is more important to the Fed, that it would rather kick the can down the road and make the problems worse rather than try to actually solve the problems because it makes the immediate economic situation more painful. With inflation up and consumer spending down, even selling products online is getting harder and harder. Fountainhead Me is a group of e-commerce consultants that know how to improve online product sales. Whether you sell on Amazon, Walmart, or on your own site, FME will help you sell more products more profitably. They've done it for thousands of clients, big and small. They help the little guys, but they've also helped major companies like Sunkist, Hasbro, and more. They have the industry's best people on staff, including copywriters, SEO, paid advertisers, fulfillment specialists, among others. In addition, they have a great product photo studio and everything else needed to get the edge over your competitors, including manufacturing sources in China, to buy your products better. Shopify is one of my other sponsors. Well, Fountainhead Me is a Shopify partner that can help you develop or optimize your Shopify store to get a positive return on your advertising spend, which of course, they can also manage. Fountainhead Me is a consultant with a simple hourly rate. No retainers, contracts, or setup fees. Simply pay for the hours that you need them to work for you. I'm good friends with the owner, Ryan. He's one of my neighbors, so you'll be dealing with good people. In fact, the name of his company says a lot about his personal philosophy. If your business has total revenue greater than $10,000 a month, go to fountainheadme.com Peter for a free analysis that will tell you how to be more profitable selling products online. But getting back to some of the economic data that came out on Thursday, The situation is already getting more painful right now. Construction spending in the month of October dropped more than expected. The consensus was for a decline of 0.1. Instead, we dropped by 0.3. And the year-over-year increase is now just 9.2 versus the prior month's 10.9. But you have to keep this 0.3% decline in construction spending in its proper context, because the cost of construction is skyrocketing. Building costs, labor costs have gone way up. So the fact that spending is down means construction is way down because the price of what is being constructed has gone up dramatically. So that means that the actual volume of construction is collapsing because if construction continued, at its prior pace, construction spending would be soaring, but it's not. 
even though it's more expensive to build, the total amount of money spent building is going down. And that's because the volume of building is collapsing. And this collapse in construction spending is a function of the weak housing market, which is soon going to deprive so many Americans of their home equity. And don't make the mistake like Jerome Siegel is making that falling home prices mean inflation is coming down. They don't. Inflation is going to keep going up because, as I've said many times, the price of the house means nothing. It's the cost of owning the house that's important. And even as home prices are going down, the monthly mortgage payments to buy that home are going up. But if you already own your home, what's important is not the price to buy one, but the cost of maintaining it, the cost of living there. And there the costs are surging, the utility costs, the insurance costs, the maintenance costs, the taxes. In fact, someone sent me an email which contained a copy of their fire insurance for the complex that they lived in, which was a shared cost among all of the homeowners in this community. And two years ago, the total cost for the fire insurance policy was about $300,000. Now it's about $2 million. You're talking about a massive increase in the cost of insurance. And there are two reasons for that increase. One is big losses from the insurance companies having covered prior fires because this policy is being written out in the Lake Tahoe area of California where there were a lot of fires. But also, if a house burns down, the cost of rebuilding it is now so much higher because of increased construction costs, and all that has to be built in to the premiums for fire insurance. And so these costs are going way up for people who live in homes, and it doesn't matter about the drop in the home price. That's got nothing to do with inflation. Again, that's asset prices, just like stock prices. Stock prices are going to fall, but that doesn't mean there's any relief on the inflation front. No, one of the reasons that stock prices are going to fall is because inflation is going to continue to rise. And because Americans are spending so much of their money on basic necessities, they don't have enough money left over to buy a lot of the products that are being sold by a lot of these companies whose share prices are going to be falling. But of course, also rising inflation is going to push up interest rates, which is going to bring down the present value of those diminished earnings, which also means lower stock prices. Then we got more bad news on the manufacturing sector. The PMI manufacturing number for November came out at 47.7. Yes, it was slightly better than the 47.6 number from the prior month, but still a horrible number. Remember, any number below 50 indicates contraction. So we are in a manufacturing recession that was also confirmed by the ISM manufacturing index for November sinking below 50. It came out at 49. The prior month, it was at 50.2. The expectation was for 49.9. But again, anything below 50 indicates contraction. And this is the first time that that index has been below 50 since May of 2020. What was going on in May of 2020? That was the depth of the COVID lockdowns. And so the manufacturing sector is as weak right now as it was in the worst part of the COVID pandemic. What does that tell you about the health of the economy? 
and where the economy is likely headed in 2023. But I want to move on and talk about the market's reaction to what was heralded as a much stronger than expected jobs report, in particular, the reaction in the foreign exchange and the precious metals market. Because in the immediate aftermath of the release of that stronger than expected number, exactly what you would expect to happen, happened based on what has been happening in the recent past, in that the dollar immediately rallied and gold immediately sold off. In fact, gold was down 20 bucks and the dollar, which had come in weaker on the day, rallied across the board. Again, this is the way the traders have been trained and the algorithms have been programmed to react to what is seen as stronger economic data based on the impact that it has on Fed policy. But as I pointed out in my last podcast that I recorded on Wednesday, after I observed the way the markets reacted to Powell's very hawkish speech about inflation and how committed the Fed was to bringing it down and how there was no evidence whatsoever that there was any headway being made in the fight against inflation. And so the Fed was going to have to raise rates higher and keep them higher longer. I thought these were fighting words from the Fed and the markets just didn't buy what Powell was selling because we had a fall in the dollar and a rise in the price of gold in the face of that speech. And I said, to me, that was convincing evidence that the markets had changed and it didn't really matter now what Powell said because investors know that he's all bark and no bite. And in fact, we had some real follow through on Thursday. Gold prices shot up again, better than $20. In fact, we closed Thursday above $1,800 in the price of gold and silver was even stronger. And the US dollar continued to fall. In fact, on Thursday, we closed below 105 on the US dollar index. And I have been talking about 105 as a key level for the U.S. dollar from a technical perspective. Now, after we got the jobs number, we saw gold giving back a good chunk of those gains and the dollar recovering some of those losses. But then the markets reversed and the dollar sold off and the dollar index closed negative on the day. And gold recovered almost all of its losses. It still managed to close down a couple of bucks, just below 1800 But silver actually finished the day positive. Now, the reversal also happened in the stock market. Dow Jones futures sold off to about negative 500 as soon as the jobs numbers came out. But by the end of trading, the Dow closed positive and the NASDAQ paired its losses turning what started out to be a large decline into a very small loss. And again, this is further confirming my suspicions that due to this new perception that the markets have of the weakness in the economy and the likelihood that the Fed won't be able to deliver as much in the way of tightening as Powell is now projecting, I think we're going to get a rally between now and the end of the year in the stock market. 
the so-called Santa Claus rally, but it is a sucker's rally that will not last and should be sold. In contrast, what's going on in the gold market and in the gold stocks, this is not a sucker's rally. This is a new bull market that nobody is talking about, and it's going to coincide with a new bear market in the U.S. dollar because with the fall on Friday, the dollar index not only closed the day below 105, it closed the week below 105. It closed Friday at 104 spot five, down another 20 basis points on the day, despite what was seen as stronger than expected jobs numbers. I think the next key level for the dollar index is 102. And if we close below that in the next week, I think there's a good chance that the dollar index can sink below 96 before the end of the year, which would mean the dollar would actually finish 2022 negative, even after being up close to 20% at its highs. By the way, as of right now, the dollar index has lost 9% from its high. And if you look at the Swiss franc in particular, the Swiss franc is now only down about 2% on the year versus the dollar. And I'm very confident that by the end of the year, even if the dollar index finishes up, the dollar will end the year down against the Swiss franc. So it's the Swiss franc, not the U.S. dollar, that will prove to be the safe haven currency. But the ultimate safe haven from all currencies is gold. In fact, looking at the weekly gains, the price of gold rose about 2.5% on the week, silver up about 8%, The GDX was up 5.2%, and the GDXJ was up 5.6%. But taking a broader look at what's going on here with the precious metals and the mining stocks, gold is now 11% above its lows, and it's now only down 2.2% on the year. Silver has had an even bigger comeback. It's now 32% above It's low for the year. Silver is in a huge bull market and nobody is talking about it. In fact, silver is now down just 1% on the year. And in fact, I am now confident that both gold and silver are going to finish 2022 with gains. In fact, many of the people in the crypto space were pointing to gold's failure to rally in 2022. In fact, gold's losses in the face of surging inflation as proof that gold was no longer relevant and that it had been replaced by Bitcoin. Bitcoin is down 63% so far in 2022, and the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is down 74%. So if gold's 2% fall means gold's irrelevant, what does Bitcoin's 63% fall mean? Clearly, gold is every bit as relevant as it's always been. It's just that not a lot of people appreciate that relevance, but they will. And in fact, gold could have such a strong finish to 2022 that it may end up beating the official rate of inflation. Whether it ends up beating the actual rate of inflation, I don't know that it can make that big a move in the remaining days of 2022, but I'm sure it will make up that lost ground in 2023, because I am expecting an explosive year for both gold and silver in 2023. 
In fact, look at what's already happening with the mining stocks. The GDX is now 39% above its 2022 low. That is a huge move. And it's now only down 6.6% on the year. Gold stocks are now stronger than any of the other major indexes. The GDX is no longer even in a bear market, only being down 6.6% on the year. In fact, it's clearly in a bull market, being up 39% from its lows. And in fact, the juniors have made an even bigger move. The GDXJ is now 44% above its 2022 low. Now, it's still down 11.2% on the year, but that would only put it in correction territory on the decline. But clearly, what's more significant is the 44% move from the low, which clearly puts the index in a bull market. But what's more significant about this bull market is that nobody is talking about it. It is happening in complete obscurity. It is off everybody's radar. Nobody is talking about what's probably going to end up being the biggest bull market in gold mining stocks ever. And the fact that nobody is talking about it is music to my ears because I want as few people talking about it as possible so that more of my clients can keep on buying without having to compete with everybody else because that way they can get better prices. And by the way, on this podcast, I completely nailed the low in the gold mining stocks because the very day that Barrick Gold came out with bad news and the stock hit a new 52-week low, I was on the podcast saying that was capitulation. That was the big money throwing in the towel, and that marked the absolute low in gold stocks. And you know what? It's been straight up from there, and I think the trajectory of this increase is actually going to accelerate. Now, compare what's happening to the gold stocks to tech stocks because the NASDAQ is still down 26.5% on the year. At one point, the gold stocks were down more than the NASDAQ. Now the NASDAQ is down a lot more than the gold stocks. In fact, even if you look at the NASDAQ's rally off its low, it's only moved up by 15%. Not a new bull market, a correction in a bear market. And if you look at the more speculative tech stocks, like the ARK Innovation ETF, that's still down 60% on the year, and it's only had a 17% rise from its low, so not in a new bull market, just in correction territory, but still in a massive bear market. But it's not just gold and silver mining stocks that I expect to be in a huge bull market. I also think you're going to see bull markets in international value and dividend-paying stocks. The two basic strategies that we offer at Euro Pacific Asset Management for separately managed accounts are the dividend payers and the value strategies. And in fact, both of those strategies are also offered through mutual funds. I have the Euro Pacific Dividend Payers Fund and the Euro Pacific International Value Fund. And if you look at the year to date returns of the Dividend Payers Fund, it's now up 3.15% on the year. There are very few long-only funds that have positive returns in 2022. And remember, all of these stocks are foreign, and therefore some of the returns in the stocks are being offset by the strength of the dollar. Even though the dollar index is down 9% from its highs, it's still up about 8% on the year. 
And that means that the dividend payers fund would be up double digits had the dollar just stayed flat. But because it's had this huge headwind from a strong dollar that is subtracted from its returns, yet it was still able to deliver a positive 3.15% return thus far in 2022. And remember, that positive return nets out the management fees of the fund itself. So obviously, if you strip out those fees, the gains were even higher. In fact, that fund has done so well in 2022 that Morningstar has placed it in the top 1% of the 331 funds in its category. And as a result of that performance, the fund now has five stars. Now, the value fund not doing quite as well as the dividend payers funds because of its overweighting in gold stocks. It's only up 1.8% on the year. But if I'm right about what's going to happen to gold stocks between now and the end of the year, I think it's going to finish the year even stronger than the dividend payer fund. Right now, year to date, the value fund is in the top 2% of all the funds in its category. But over the last three years, that fund is in the top 1%. Over the last five years, the top 2%. I think by the end of the year, it'll be in the top 1% over the five-year category. Now, it's still lagging in the 10-year category. It's in the bottom 1%. But you have to remember that both the value fund and the dividend payers fund were at the bottom two or three years ago. Both of those funds had one star. Now the dividend payer fund has five stars. The value fund only has three stars because of its poor performance over 10 years. But if you just look at the performance over three and five years, it's earned five stars for those time periods. It's still being weighed down by the weakness in those early years, but that was a function of a huge rise in the dollar and drop in gold stocks. But it's my expectation that all of that lost ground will be recovered in 2023, and that fund will also have five stars. And I expect the same thing to happen with my bond fund which currently has four stars. Two years ago, my bond fund only had one star. Now it has four stars. I think by the end of next year, that fund's going to have five stars too. Now, why is the bond fund making up for so much lost ground? When the bond market was in a bubble, I deliberately kept my maturity short because I knew that bubble would pop. But that meant that during the period where the bubble was inflating, I was underperforming all the other bond funds that were participating in the bubble. But I knew that eventually the tides would reverse, the air would come out of the bond bubble, and my fund's relative performance would improve, and that is exactly what has happened. And the main difference between the way I approach money management and the way a lot of other mutual fund managers is I don't care if I have to fall behind in the short run. I don't care about relative performance over short time periods, even if those short time periods can span many years. What I care about is absolute long-term performance. And sometimes in order to deliver solid, long-term, absolute performance, you have to be willing to sacrifice some short-term performance. And that is especially true when there's a bubble. Because if you recognize a bubble and you refuse to participate 
you're always going to underperform the people who do participate because they don't realize it's a bubble. But because they don't realize it's a bubble, they don't know when it's popped. And so in the long run, you're always going to outperform the people that are chasing bubbles. If you stick to the principles and stick to the fundamentals, it's like the tortoise and the hare. Slow and steady wins the race. The problem is a lot of the value-oriented investors couldn't stick it out. They threw in the towel because they lost so much money because investors didn't understand this, and they were pulling money away from the value-oriented managers and sending it to the index funds and the guys that were chasing momentum. And I think this is what has set the stage for a decade of outperformance of actively managed value and dividend payer strategies like the ones that we are pursuing at Euro Pacific Asset Management and the ones that are in my funds. And even though we've made up a lot of lost ground on the relative performance when it comes to our foreign competitors, in the scheme of things, we're still early in the bull market in foreign value stocks and foreign dividend payer stocks. So it isn't too late by any means to get into these funds, especially if you can finance your investment by selling U.S. stocks and bonds, which still remain dramatically overpriced. You can not only get out of the dollar, but get out of overpriced U.S. financial assets by moving into much better valued foreign assets. And by the way, if you noticed, if you go to the Euro-Pacific website, europac.com, as of December 1st, that website now goes to the website for Euro-Pacific Asset Management. That website used to be europacfunds.com. I've now taken the europac.com domain and made that the official website of my asset management company. And so when you go to that site, it will redirect you to the new site for what used to be Euro-Pacific Capital, but which is now a division of Alliance Global Partners. Because remember, I sold my broker-dealer, and that broker-dealer was renamed Alliance Global Partners, but I left the website with them, and I just brought it back in December. And so now the Europac.com domain is the official website of my asset management company, which is the company that I still own and that I did not sell. But if you still have an account with Alliance Global Partners, formerly Europe Pacific Capital, I am still managing that account, even though it's not at a broker-dealer that I own, I have been hired by that broker-dealer to manage all of those accounts that are in my strategies. And of course, if you own any of my mutual funds in your Alliance Global Partner account, my team at Europe Pacific Asset Management is managing those mutual funds as well. But I want to finish up by getting back to the idea that absolute long-term performance is so much more important than short-term relative performance. After all, what difference does it make if you run up big gains in the short run, if in the long run, by the time you need your money, it's all gone because all those short-term gains have been lost? The opposite is also true. What difference do short-term losses make if in the long run, those losses turn into huge profits? It's like that song, The Gambler. There are a lot of investors that are still seated at the table that are counting their chips and they think they're winning because they still got a big stack. But by the time the final hand is dealt, they're going home broke and I'm going to have all their chips. 